0: it's not about being the best it's about being your best you know what i mean and like if you are your best if you are doing all that you can and if you are just good to people um they'll sort of see something in you
1: Good day, everyone. Welcome to another Executive Director Conversation for our podcast platform. It is always special when you're able to do professional collaborations with someone that you admire, and in this case, with a person that I even consider as family. Mr. Tony Sutton is both. I initially met Tony while doing TFA in Charlotte, and he is now the head of school at DRW Noble in Chicago. We discussed his leadership skills, his decision to attend at HBCU Hampton, his personal connection with Chicago, and more importantly, how to be a leader in the midst of challenging times. This pod is also extra special because it is because of Tony Sutton that DCS is now expanded to Chicago with several of Mr. Sutton's students traveling to Delaware for summer session 2021. Thank you again for listening and I hope you enjoy the conversation. So first and foremost, thank you. Thank you, thank you um, for just making the time to kind of uh, talk to me and to the scholars and to whomever else is listening. Uh, just to get a better sense of who you are because I know you uh, I would say I know you really well um, Going on two decades where we're like 16 17 years in terms of our friendship um, So I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you and just to introduce the world um, to you and in particular our bond um, Both within education. So thank you Tony
0: Hey, my brother. I am honored and privileged to be here uh, and I love you. So if there's anything I can do for you, you know it is not an ask at all. So I'm glad to be here as well, my
1: brother. Thank you. And I got to say, man, I'll I, be remiss to not start it off with kind of saying the first time I met you, because that always stands out <laughs> in my head. So many of you know that I did Teach for America. I did it in Charlotte. Um, and at the time, it was something that I had no clue what to expect. So I packed up my little Mazda 626. I drove from Brooklyn all the way down to Charlotte. Um, and I made it about two hours before the introduction event, uh, for everyone that was going to be in the Charlotte region. So uh, I'm in wherever location they set us up in. I don't remember where it was, but I got there first and I'm sitting there just looking at the door every time somebody comes in (laughs) and I I see no one that looks like me. (laughs) So it's just, um, one white person after another white person, um, maybe two women of color. So I'm excited. But rooms filling up, 40, 50, 60 people, and I see absolutely no (laughs) men of color. And then toward the end, I I see this brother um, walk in the door, and I said, thank you, Jesus. I'm not alone. Um, And then, to to, to my surprise, (laughs) I I see that as another Tony. Um, So I'm like, another Tony. So they, they had only two brothers in the cohort in Charlotte, and we were both Tony. So I became automatically Little Tony and the man I'm talking to right now became Big Tony. And that's what people refer to us for the next two and a half years while we were in Charlotte, man. I don't even know if you remember that, but I remember it.
0: Brother, I remember like it was yesterday, man. And to add some context to that, right? Like I was coming from Hampton. You know what I mean? And so like I had just graduated uh, from a historically black college. So my previous four years was nothing but blackness you know what I'm saying like everywhere I turned every class I went uh my dorm it was nothing but black folks and so it's similar to you I remember walking into the room and just be like oh there I don't see anybody that looks like me this is very different and I do remember distinctly bro like looking across the room and seeing you and I, I felt it was like one of those rom-coms you know what I'm saying you catch eye contact you hear the heart playing in the background I was like Thank God. Like, no, I that's my You definitely brother. did a head
1: nod, too, from far away. <laughs> right. like, <"All>
0: right, okay. <laughs> far away, like, all right, all right. There's, there's, in case something goes down, I know I got one person that I can rely on here. Um, but no, man, like, it, it's, it's been amazing to see uh, what started from that moment. And, you know, like, just really how fortunate it is, right? Like, we, we have the opportunity to meet many people in our lives. Um, but the fact that it was just us two. Um, and fortunately, we were able to like bond in incredible ways, man to where we we know we've established a brotherhood uh since two thousand and five now so i but I remember that moment distinctly, brother. I'll never forget that moment
1: and and what I'm excited about just kind of sharing with people through this conversation is the amazing leader that I know you are um and especially as d c s is expanded to uh chicago um all that wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for the great work that you're doing in that city um, and beyond. Um, So first of all, thank you, thank you for the work that you're doing and the work that you continue to do and for introducing DCS to a a totally new type of uh, scholar. Um, And we're really excited to welcome some students from your school to come be a part of this new Chicago expansion. With that in mind, what I would love to do with this conversation, at least to start, is to get a sense of who you were Back in the day. So even before I met you, um, because I know for myself, if people looked at me when I was 14, 15, 16 and see all the stuff I'm doing now, they would have never expected um, all the things that I have done. And I'm assuming that that is potentially a a similar narrative for yourself. So as we start this conversation, just walk me through the high school version of Tony Sutton.
0: High school version of Tony Sutton. So um, I'm from a place called Lawrenceville, Georgia. And uh, Lawrenceville, Georgia, uh, is a suburb about 25 minutes northeast of Atlanta. Um, and what's interesting about Lawrenceville is like a couple of claims to fame about like Lawrenceville and Gwinnett County. In, in the South, like particularly like Georgia, places like Mississippi, there's also like a county affiliation, right? It's all from Gwinnett County, uh, and Gwinnett County is named after this gentleman, Button Gwinnett, who was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, uh, and then also Lawrenceville, Georgia is where uh, Larry Flint, who I believe just recently passed, he was um, the founder of Penthouse and sort of a huge advocate for like First Amendment stuff, a lot of court cases in like the 70s and 80s. Um, but Lawrenceville is actually where some of his court cases were where he was ultimately uh, shot and paralyzed. I, I, so, you know, Lawrenceville is, is has that claim to fame. Um, but for me as a young black man there, you know, it's it's... An interesting place because I love where I'm from. Uh, and the reason I love where I'm from, first and foremost, is because of the people. Like some of my best friends, like who are my brothers to this day, um, I met in Lawrenceville. Um, and, you know, we played high school basketball together. We would kick it at my parents' house, go to their parents' house, uh, go to concerts down in Atlanta. Um, so, like, I love where I'm from, love where I'm from. But at the same time, my experience was sort of shaped by how race was just sort of uh, an ever-present thing. There, right? Like there. I went to a high school called Central Gannett High School in Lawrenceville. And we would go to school and there would be kids that had like Confederate flags on their trucks. Uh, kids would wear Jefferson Davis t-shirts. The South would rise again t-shirts. Um, and in that moment, It just seemed normal so like it wasn't even something that like uh engendered outrage you know what i mean like there was there was nothing a part of it that was sort of like what in the world is going on it just sort of felt like yeah i mean this is georgia this is the south like this is gonnette county this is what it is because it wasn't just lawrenceville right like there's surrounding towns we're talking about decula we're talking about smyrna you're talking about georgia like you saw these things all the time and so you know for me there was always this sort of and I can kind of say it now, I don't know if I would have been able to articulate it back then, but like identity was something that was like always, um, I was trying to like figure out, trying to figure out where I stood in, trying to figure out where me, where I fit in. And I would sort of have my core group of friends that were, uh, that are still my brothers to this day, that are all uh, black, but then I also have friends who were white. And some of my friends were some of the kids who wore a Jefferson Davis t-shirt or some of our friends were the kids who had a Confederate flag on their truck. Um, And it was one of those things where like you felt uneasy, but it was also sort of like they are the product of something. And so I think because, you know, I knew them, like by the time I went to high school, like I had known these kids since seventh grade, eighth grade. Uh, I had been to some of their houses. We had hung out before. And so like it was this very, nuanced thing to where like there was these symbols um that as an adult now i would say like uh, i would handle in a very different way than i would have when i was 16 17 and 18 but like trying to trying to figure out like where i fit in with that man i remember distinctly like you know wearing going to like abercrombie and fitch you know what i'm saying and trying to get some of the plaid abercrombie and fitch shorts or just trying to sort of figure out these ways like how can I continue to like fit in with these people who I know, but at the same time, still trying to figure out like who I am. You know what I mean? And so when I was with my white friends, we would go to, I remember going like to country clubs, you know what I'm saying? It's like a, and I don't, I don't mean like country club, like golf. I mean like country club of like country music, line dancing, you know what I mean? And then also with my black friends, like we would go out and we'd do something very, very different. You know what I mean? And so like this part of like, Identity, I would say, is like one of the really defining features of uh, my high school experience. Um, but I would say also as it pertains to leadership, um, I play basketball. I love basketball. You and I used to hoop down in Charlotte. Um, but I was never, ever the best player of my team. Very far from it. Um, particularly, uh, you know, my sophomore, junior, senior years of high school, I play I played varsity ball. Um, and I, I played a lot, really, my sophomore year. Uh, but my junior and senior years, we had some youngins that came up that were much better than I, uh, and so they, they definitely took some time, but my, my teammates still saw me as a leader. Um, and that was one of the defining moments of my life. Uh, do I, can I tell a quick story? Is that okay? Oh yeah,
1: definitely. Without question, go.
0: Um, so I, I'll never forget, uh, this moment that I think, and I, I sort of tell it now as a part of my leadership journey, uh, but my senior year of high school, uh, my mom was on top of me, like apply to college, apply to college, apply to college. I was like, I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. And this was March. I'll never forget this. It was March of my senior year of high school. And I came home from basketball practice one day and there was a sign up on my bedroom door. And my mom calls me TJ. My family calls me TJ for Tony junior. And it said TJ's options after high school. Number one, go to college. Number two, go to the military. Number three, go live with your father. No other options. So I was like, <laughs> wait a second. This is, <laughs> this is a lot right now, mom. So I talked, I was like, what's, what's this about? She was like, listen, if you don't apply to a college tomorrow and your counselor doesn't call me and tell me you applied to a college, you will not play your basketball game tomorrow night. I was like, okay. And I know my mom's not one to trifle with, you, you know what I'm saying? So I knew like, okay, like I, I got to get this done. So the next day, I saw my counselor, Dr. Dasty. Uh, we did my application. I applied to Hampton University, the only college I applied to. I only applied to one college. It was Hampton. And uh, I got home that afternoon. Uh, I called my mom. She was still at work. I said, Mom, I did it. I applied to the college. I'm good to go. She was like, um, did Dr. Daisy call me? I was like, well, no, she didn't call you, but like I did it. You know what I mean? Like I was like, you can call her tomorrow. She'll let you know, like, I did it. It's done. She's like, I told you to tell her to call me. She didn't call me. Do not play in that game tonight. I was like, oh my god, bro! Like I'm, I'm almost eighteen at this point. I'm feeling like a grown man about to go to college. My mom said, like, you can't play in the basketball game, <laughs> right? Real. So I was mad, bro. Like I punched a hole in my wall in my room. Uh, I tell my daughters this to this day. Like I punched a hole in my walls. i was all so upset. And I was like, OK, I got to so put a Michael Jordan poster over the hole in the wall. So my mom didn't even notice until she moved out that house. And I was in college at that time. So I never got any flat for it. But uh, I went to the game that night but I had to tell my coaches and my teammates, like, hey, man, uh, my, my mom said I can't play tonight. And uh, we were at this game and we were, you know, we were getting beat by like 15 um, at the half. So we get into the locker room and my the coach is just like getting in on us you know what I'm saying yelling cussing doing all those pieces uh and then he before he's like you know what y'all not listening to bleep do it yourself and he just leaves the locker room slams the door and my teammates look at me they're like bro like you coaches i'm like what they're like coaches i was like okay <laughs> so we get back out bro in the second half and literally bro like i'm calling the plays like I'm sort of t- telling what we're going to do. I'm seven folks in and out um, during timeouts. Like they're coming to huddle around me. And I'm sort of saying like, all right, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. Boom, 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 boom. And we start to come back. You know what I'm saying? So like we get to the fourth quarter. We close the lead a bit. It got to the point to where the assistant coach is coming to me. Like, hey, why don't you think about X, Y, and Z? Maybe you sort of just say X, Y, and Z. And I'm kind of like, all right, bro. We ended up winning that game. Come back winning that game, man. And like that moment was just so – so powerful, man, because, you know, one, again, like I was not the best player on my team at all. Like we had a handful of folks who like uh, got scholarship ball, so like D2, D3 schools. Uh, we were a good school. We were a good team. I think we went to like the Elite Eight in state that year. So we were a good team. We had some good players on that team, man. And I was not one of them. I had, you know, I was the guy that would get the rebound, take the charge, you know what <laughs> I mean? <laughs> but they, they came around me. And I think like that moment showed me like, it's not about being the best. It's about being your best. You know what I mean? And like, if you are your best, if you are doing all that you can, and if you are just good to people, um, they'll sort of see something in you. And and that night, the assistant coach, um, you know, he called me. And he was like, I'm gonna come pick you up. And so he picked me up. We went to Waffle House at Georgia Staple. Love me some Waffle House. Uh, went to Waffle House that night. And He was like, man, I don't know what it is, but you have it. You know what I mean? He was like the fact that they really rallied around you, that you did this thing. And like that moment, man, I think for me, like, let me know, like, like, wow, like there might be something there. Uh, and so that that moment is like indelible as a part of my leadership journey for certain.
1: Man, there's so many things I want to kind of like ask you about with that. I connect in so many different ways. But then at the same time, hindsight at times could be twenty twenty, 20, man. Uh, so. For me, nowhere near as amazing as the experience you had in that story um, in terms of kind of foretelling a lot that you are doing now. But I had a moment when I was in seventh grade with a teacher exposing me to a program in New York City. And he just stopped me and told me that I have a potential that I cannot even see within myself. And the best bet for me, just being where I was from in Brooklyn, was to leave the city. Um, so for me at that time, when I was 13, 14 years old, the last thing I wanted to do was leave Brooklyn. But this teacher, uh, Mr. Roth, my social studies teacher, he he just said that you need to go to boarding school. Um, you need to kind of escape your everyday surroundings to really untap your true potential. Um And I pushed back. Um It was actually me and Braxton. It was like we were in the same kind of uh, situation in Brooklyn, so we pushed back. But ultimately, we did the program and we went to boarding school. And from our conversations before. I I know you stayed in Georgia, and you went to public school, then you went to your HBCU, but you also were exposed to boarding school, but you ultimately decided to stay. Um, So I'd love to hear about that, but then also kind of piggyback off of that and talk about why Hampton, why HBCU? Um, Because you know, I went to uh, PWI, and I loved my experience, but I always felt that there was something missing and I wish folks would tell me more about HBCUs when I was younger, um, because I think I would have gave it a lot more serious consideration and possibly gone to an HBCU. But I just didn't have people in my air telling me about it. So talk a little bit about um, not choosing to go to boarding school route and leaving Georgia and then also uh, choosing to go to uh, HBCU.
0: Yeah, man, I think, you know something that you said was a common trend in both of our stories, right? Like, so one, I mentioned my basketball coach, Coach Russell, who sort of saw something in me. You mentioned you were a social studies teacher. Um, but I would also, like, my family, man, like, my my aunt in particular, one of my aunts, um, was just, like, so instrumental um, in my journey. And, and my cousins as well, like, <laughs> excuse me, brother. My aunt, she, um, she went to an HBCU. She went to Fisk. Uh, and then after Fisk, she went to... Uh, Notre Dame law school. She got an MBA from Northwestern. She did like a program at Oxford for a bit. And so, like, growing up, my aunt was always like, listen, it's not even about going to college. Like, she always used to lay out, here's your plan. Like, she had a plan for us. Like, you go to HBCU for undergrad, you go to Ivy League for grad school. Like, that's your plan. And, like, she used to always reinforce that. And uh, when I was maybe in eighth or ninth grade, uh, eighth grade, actually, you know, she's always talking about boarding school she was like, you really need to sort of think about boarding school. You really need to think about going up east. And she told me about this program at Exeter uh, in New Hampshire. And uh, so, you know, I applied to the program. I got in. I didn't know anything about boarding school except for my aunt's home. I'm from Georgia. I'm from Lawrenceville. Boarding school is not in our lexicon of conversation, right? Um, But I I got accepted to this program and spent six weeks um, at New Hampshire, at Exeter in New Hampshire. And it was an amazing experience, man. Like, one, so we fly into Boston uh, and we sort of get a, uh, you know, the, the charter bus takes you to New Hampshire to Exeter's campus. And you get on this campus, it's kind of like, bro, this is like the nicest thing I've ever seen in my life. Like, this is a college campus, man. And you sort of, you're there and you sort of learn about, you learn about boarding school, right? Like, you learn about um, the money behind it. You learn about the legacy, all the people, the, the politicians, the presidents, all these folks um, and you know, the, the thing that sort of stands out for me about that experience was one, or there's actually three things that really sort of stand out. One, just the like instruction, the Harkness method was I remember sort of reading about that when I got my app, my materials sort of, uh, orienting me uh, to what the experience is going to be and sort of being in a classroom to where you're sitting around a table with a teacher, 10, 11 kids, and y'all are just like talking about the content you're talking about sort of what it is you're learning and the instructors um, were not telling you sort of what it is you needed to learn they were inviting you to think about what it is you were discussing right now they were inviting you to really sort of think about what your classmates were saying and like where can you affirm what it is they're saying? Where can you critique what it is they're saying? What are the questions? And sort of like, how do you really dive into that? So that was something that's always stuck out to me and sort of as I think about <clears throat> in my school leadership journey, like how do we think about educating our kids is something that was always there. Uh, the second thing that stuck out was just nature. Like being outside was such an important part of that experience, right? Like whether you're just serving the quad every weekend they would have trips sort of going up into the mountains to hike or going into the woods to sort of do these things. Um, there was like a, a lake or maybe lake is too strong of a word, but a body of water uh, that you could sort of go. And so like just how important like being outside was, you know what I mean? And just how peaceful it was. Like you're almost like in this bubble to where there are no distractions. And the third thing was, again, just the people. The people were, they were outstanding and they came from all walks of life. Like in the dorm I was in, um, there was a, a guy from Dublin. There was a guy from Paris, uh, but we also had brothers from Brooklyn. You know what I mean? Like I'll, I'll never forget. It was like three brothers from Brooklyn that I got to connect with real tight. And we used to always, so we had a brother from Portland, Oregon as well. So just like the, the diversity of people there sort of being able to, just learn and sort of hear about what their experiences were as well. And our dorm director at the time, again, he was like, Hey man, like, you should really think about this. Like, I, I think you would be great up here. You seem to be getting along well. You seem to be doing well with the independence. Like, I really think you should be thinking about this. And I talked to my mom about it quite a bit. Uh, and my mom is super supportive. Like, she was gung ho. Um, but for me, I think it was just like, you know, I'm, I'm a mama's boy. And leaving home and i had my friends as well and just like leaving home was kind of like i don't know so like it was it was really ultimately like a a 14 year old at the time decided like no i don't want to leave my friends you know what i mean like that was the the piece in terms of not doing it but there are so many moments that i sort of took from that um that i even sort of used to this day as a leader and that's actually one of the reasons bro, when i got to my school in chicago bro like i called you maybe that first week like tone I got a student, bro. She needs to be at St. Andrews. And like that's sort of, we did that work around getting our kids to boarding school. So now at the school I was at, we had we have a student now at St. Andrews. Uh, is she about to graduate no, this year. She graduated. Oh,
1: she's graduating she graduated this, year, this year. Yeah, this year.
0: she graduated this year. We have a student at Choke. We have a student at Exeter. We have a student at Hershey. And then even some of the private schools here in Chicago. So like that experience, our conversation sort of really drove that. Um, but then sort of thinking about Hampton, again, my aunt, bro, like it was one of those things where it really wasn't even something I had to cognizantly choose because my aunt was always saying like HBCUs, HBCUs, HBCUs. And Hampton was sort of the pick for me. I think two, two things. One, you know, being from Georgia, Morehouse is right there. Uh, And I remember we, me and my mom visited Morehouse. Um, I loved it, but it was just kind of like, It's too close to home, like I, I can't have my mom just sort of pop up, like it's only 30 minutes away, you know what I mean? I don't know what I'm gonna get into, but I know I don't want my mom just sort of surprising me at college like that. Uh, and so my mom actually went to Hampton, uh, she went to Hampton for a semester and she got homesick and then went back to Chicago. Uh, and so I think there was also this thing of like wanting to experience this thing that my mom experienced, but sort of wanted to like finish it out for her, you know what I mean? And so Hampton was uh, the the only school I applied to. And I actually didn't even visit Hampton. I applied, got accepted, took the paperwork back in, paid the deposit and then I visited. I visited uh, the summer after my uh, senior year and it was me and my mom and one of my best friends at the time, uh, Marcus. And we went and it was like, this is it. (laughs) Like, this is it, bro. Like the campus is beautiful. It was right on the water. And if I'm being candid, and I I believe I can be candid in this space, uh, as a 17-year-old, 18-year-old male at the time, one of our tour guides was like, yeah, so the ratio of women to men here is blah, 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 blah. We were kind of like, whoa. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) So this sounds great. Um, But, man, Hampton, you know, next to marrying my wife, easily the best decision I've ever made in my life. Um, And sort of going back to those identity pieces I mentioned, I'm coming from Lawrenceville, Georgia. I'm coming from this place of, again, Confederate flags, the South horizon, again, um, and being in this place to where, as a young Black man, one, I'm just, like, surrounded by Blackness everywhere. Like, I had a lot of Black friends in, in Lawrenceville, but it wasn't anything like this. Like, everything was Black, you know what I mean? And, and to just always be affirmed and to not have to... I would say to not have to, but to have people to really guide you, to really think about like, who are you as a black person and how do you think about where you are as a black person in the context of the U.S. and what it is you want to do. I had a professor, Dr. Benjamin, like freshman year. She called me like my son, like, you're going to do X, Y, and Z. Like she was the one, like, you're going to do X, Y, and Z. You're going to do this. You're going to be in this club. You're going to do X, Y, and Z. And also, you know, coming from Lawrenceville, <clears throat> I was, like, the black kid in all the honors classes. You know what I'm saying? Like, there, was a, there might have been 30 kids in an honors class, and, like, four of us was black, and I was sort of always one of those black kids. And so I think there was all, also, like, an inflated sense of self. You know what I mean? Like, when you are one of the few, you sort of think that, oh, like, I might be, you know, a little special. And then I got to Hampton as number of black people and brilliant. I'm kind of like, oh, my God, like these are the smartest people i've ever met before in my life uh my freshman year i stayed in the honors dorm at hampton pierce hall shout out to pierce and my the guys across the hall from me man two of my brothers uh brandon r.i.p and nick nick diggs the smartest man i've ever met before in my life the smartest man i've ever met before in my life and there was just so much of that all the time where it's like it's just interesting experience of like being humbled and inspired you know what i mean it's to where it's like wow like there's there's I'm seeing all this greatness around and like you want to strive towards it and you don't want to strive towards it out of competition you want to strive towards it because like you respect and appreciate where these people are and it's kind of like okay like let me step up like I, I really dig where this brother's doing I really dig how he thinks about things like I really dig the knowledge he's coming to these conversations with like and I want to be able to hang with that you know what I mean so like I gotta up my game up so it would like definitely the best experience of my life uh, or the best choice of my life
1: besides marrying my wife, for sure. So not to cut you off, but I I want to kind of push you a little bit on that because what you're saying is a common experience that I find our scholars have in the sense of they're in their public schools and they're doing well. So they're taking the most competitive classes. They're getting good grades um, and they just don't know what they don't know about the next level. How do you or how did you kind of balanced uh, concept of I feel that I'm ready, but now I'm in this situation and I see that there's a whole bunch of other people way more prepared than me at any time did you feel that, you know what, maybe I shouldn't be doing this or I should rethink what I'm doing and not feel that you were quote unquote good enough. Because that, I feel like that's a reality that many of our scholars feel.
0: You know, Tone, I definitely, and I hear that in my experience as well. And I will say for me, And I think this is one of the things that has been a part of my academic journey um, as a student, but also as a, a leader and a teacher. The adults in schools matter so much in terms of being able to always like affirm our students, affirming our young people. And I was fortunate to where academically, I was always affirmed. Like I wasn't a great athlete, but I was a pretty good student for most of my life. And I was constantly affirmed as a good student. And also, you know, like my family, like my mom, my aunts, uh, my uncle, my grandparents, like I've, I've been so privileged and so blessed to just have people tell me like, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. And so like, even when things were hard and things were definitely hard, like, you know, my freshman year, I think my GPA might've been like a 2.0 at Hampton. And and it was, I think a combination of things like one, because school did come relatively easy to me, I didn't really have to like work hard, quite frankly. You know what I mean? Like I didn't have to prioritize time. I didn't have to sort of set time aside to do certain things. When I got to Hampton, like those, those practices and habits that I had as a high school student just were not going to be the same practices and habits that were going to lead to success in college. And I had to experience some failure to like really, really learn that lesson. And I think leaving Hampton hey, my freshman year, I you know I was in the honors dorm my freshman year. I was an academic probation after that, so I couldn't be in the honors dorm. Um, I lost some of my scholarship money. Like I, I suffered some consequences Um, because I was not mentally mature enough sort of in those moments to be like, oh, you got to change the game up, you know what I mean? Like I just sort of kept doing what I knew how to do. And I think there was also this piece to where like, again, Dr. Benjamin, like will tell me certain things, but we are the ones that have to do it. Like we have to, we have to somehow be aware enough to be able to like receive and accept the guidance that we're giving and then sort of apply that to our actions. And I didn't apply those things to my actions my freshman year. Now, I will also add, you know, like, I just wasn't focused. You know what I mean? Like, again, because school came so easy, like, I thought what I could do was like, all right, you know what? I'll go to class. And then I'm going to go back to the dorm, get on the sticks, play live, mad with my boys, do whatever. On the weekends, I'm going to hang out. And I could maybe stay up late and punch out a paper, right? And i stayed up late. I punched out a paper, and I promptly got a C minus or a D plus. Or I was kicking it. And I would say, all right, I'm going to stay up late and knock this paper out. And it'd be like 11 o'clock. I'm like, all right, I'm going to sleep for a couple hours, get a couple hours of sleep, and I'll wake up at two or three to knock this paper out. <clears throat> I would wake up at two or three and be like, you know what, man, I am just going to eat this. Or I, I'll miss my alarm. You know what I mean? And so, like, there were just so many, I was just really immature. Like, I was just really immature and didn't recognize that I was sort of immature, Right. I think like that's the part, like having people around you that sort of help you see and understand what behaviors you're doing, what those behaviors reflect about your character, your habits, your your mindset, and then being able to apply those things differently. Uh, And I'll also say we can sort of talk about this later. Um, I wouldn't have been able to name it then, but I can name it now. There are also just some like mental health things that I had going on in my journey as well that were impacting me, but I couldn't sort of name what those things were, but they were having an impact on me at the time as well.
1: Um, I hope I answered your question. Oh, no, no, you, you did. And you're, you're bringing me to a good place because I feel that far too often that people look at black men like me and you, they see that you're a head of school, school leader, they see that I'm leading this program, and they come to the assumption that we were always this finished product. Um, they, they, they think that, you know what, Tony, you've always had it together. Like, I'm so proud of the work that you're doing. And clearly you were disfocused from day one. And what you're articulating is the fact that that is not the case. Like we had our growing pains. We had to take out lumps. Um, we had our failures. We had to learn from those failures to get to the point where we are today. So I, I appreciate you for kind of sharing that because everybody thinks that it's, it's, it's easy, um, or that. You've always had this plan from when you were 14 or when you were a freshman and sophomore in college that you knew you were going to be doing what you're doing today when that may not be the case. And I think it takes moments of us, especially as black male educators, to live transparency and be honest about the struggles that we've had, but then also what we did to overcome those struggles and what we wish we knew back then to better be prepared for handling those struggles. Um, And with that in mind. Let's, let's fast forward now um, in terms of you being a school leader in Chicago. Um, first of all, your connection to the city of Chicago. Um, but then also in your role as a school leader, how are you taking your experiences and trying to kind of translate that into the students that you work with now?
0: Yeah, man. So connection to Chicago. I was born in Chicago. My mom and my dad from Chicago. Uh, my grandparents. um, you know, part of the Great Migration. So they were from uh, Black Hawk, Mississippi, and uh, moved to Chicago, uh, 50s. Uh, and so my family grew up uh, on my mom's side in Cabrini Green, which was a notorious sort of projects in Chicago. And my dad grew up on the south side of Inglewood. And actually, uh, my school where I'm at right now, um, when I was born in Chicago, like the apartment that I lived with my mom and dad is like less than five minutes from my school right now in North Lawndale in Chicago. Uh, my grandparents where they ultimately settled they live on the west side of Chicago um, Cicero and Monroe is where they stay and that's less than 10 minutes where my school is right now so that's that was actually that was actually one of the draws of wanting to be at uh, be at DRW be my current school was was this sort of personal connection um, you know I love Chicago Um you know, you know this. I'm a big Chicago Bulls fan. Like Michael Jordan was my guy. Uh, so, like, I love Chicago. I used to come to Chicago uh, even after we moved to Georgia. Like, we came up all the time for like holidays, Thanksgiving, um, summers. Uh, and then, even when I was at Hampton, I would sort of come to Chicago every summer during my time at Hampton as well. And I would stay with my grandparents, sort of live with my aunt. So, like, Chicago uh, is a huge part of my life. Uh, and, and I love the city. Uh, and in terms of the like, the things that we bring to our students. You know, there's a a couple of of ways to sort of answer that. You know, one, and and being transparent, I was hired at my school, I became a principal at my current school on June 1st uh, of 2020 at the height of the pandemic. And I've not really been in the building with my students yet. Like I've seen my students, we had a, drive-through graduation, Uh, so I was there to sort of meet some of our seniors there, and then we had like a couple of item pickups of being able to, um, you know, kids come clean out the lockers, and so I saw some kids there, but like I've not yet really been in like community in sort of the physical space yet with my students, so like everything that I've done with my kids and my staff right now is primarily through Zoom and online, and it's been hard, quite frankly. because, you know, as teachers, like, we do it because we love young people, right? And we sort of yell, we love the energy that they bring and, like, the joy that they bring us. And, like, being in that sort of physical proximity is such an important part of that work. And I haven't been able to do that yet. And to the credit of my students and our staff, like, they have still been, like, just incredibly receptive uh, to me and, and accepting of, like, who I am. And so I would say one of the things that I've I've brought somewhat to this school, and I think we're sort of still building on it, is really talking about, like, mental and emotional health. Like, this pandemic has been extraordinarily difficult, and it's been extraordinarily difficult for Black and brown communities, especially. Uh, And the community that we serve, North Lawndale, has been disproportionately impacted um, by the results of COVID. And it's also, again, I'm not saying anything new, but it's like uh, revealed the level of inequity uh, in our city. And Chicago is a notoriously racist and segregated city. And so it's definitely highlighted some things there. But one of the things we talk about all the time, is like, and this was my predecessor and sort of the staff last year, the sort of mantra of of being radically human. And and that's something that, uh, you know, when I got to DRW, really resonated with me. And that's something that I think we have continued to try to uh, sort of make a part of just like how we approach the work, how we think about interacting with our students and staff and families. It's like, we have to be radically human in this moment. And I think the work is sort of always sort of revealing and unpacking what being radically human means as different situations and scenarios unfold. You know what I mean? Like, and I think that approach has allowed us to still try to maintain like those bonds of community and still try to make sure that we can be there for people. Um, but it's, it's been tough, you know, it's been really, really tough. Um, and I will say, you know, one of the experiences of my previous school though, is again, like mental health. Um, it's something that we talk about a lot. Um, you know, I, I've, I have been on a journey with mental health like most of my life. And some of these things, like, I've, I've just started to discover over the past several years and talking to my moms. But, um, you know, I started seeing a the therapist as early as, like, five years old. Uh, that's about the time my parents uh, got separated. And my mom said that, like, I was wilding out. She said I was angry. Uh, she says I was getting in trouble. But she says, like, the moment to where she knew, like, I had, she had to do something for me, He's like, I raised my hand at her and hit her as a five-year-old. She was like, that let me know that something was was going on. And so really bro, throughout that time, like, I don't really remember it then, but i I like, been involved in mental health services there. Uh, when I was, I went to grad school for a little bit at UChicago. Uh, and that's, I think, when as a young adult, I really started to realize, like, something there's something that's not, I got to figure some things out. Um, and so I started seeing a therapist uh, when I was a student there. Um, and I will say, it's it's it has not been a sort of straight line journey at all. When I was seeing a therapist uh, at U Chicago, you know, those sessions revealed some things that I think honestly, like, scared me. And so I stopped going. You know, and I feel like that's been a part of my journey. It's like, I, I will go I will talk, I will open up, and I will then be, like, ashamed or embarrassed or feel guilt. Um, and, and I will always have this feeling, like, I know you're a therapist. I know this is your job, but you have to be judging me. Like, there's no way you can't be judging me right now. Like, the things I'm telling you right now, like, I, I know what I'm saying right now. Like, so you have to be judging me. And I think, like, I always just sort of feel like, you know what, I, I can't do this. And so, like, I've started and stopped therapy a number of times. Um, And, like, that's something that I sort of bring to my students all the time. It's like, and it's one of those things, like, it's, it's, you know, do as I say, not as I do is is the approach, right? Because I tell my kids all the time, like, listen, man, like, open up, be vulnerable. Like, know that whatever you're thinking, whatever you're feeling, it's not abnormal, right? Like, you are not uh, an exception. Like this is sort of part of the human experience and know that there are people who are going to love you no matter what. There are people who are going to stand by your side no matter what. Like this love is unconditional. And so when you share these things, if anything, like that's going to draw me closer to you, right, because I, I because I understand. Like I understand where you are. I understand what it is you're thinking. I understand those experiences. And that's something I think like we've, has been a, a real part of my leadership journey the past I would say seven years for sure. Something we are looking to sort of build out even more uh, at our current school, because if you are struggling with identity because of mental health, or if you are struggling to be whole, that impacts everything else. That impacts how you show up to class. That impacts how you deal with frustration, how you deal with failure, how you deal with conflict. It impacts your self-efficacy. It impacts how you sort of set goals and sort of what it is you believe you can accomplish as a person. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, that's one of the things that I, I firmly believe in is like we have to be able to normalize for our young people and our young black and Latino people, especially Latinx people, especially like there is no shame in seeking out mental health support. There is no shame in saying that you are struggling and there is no shame in having a setback. right? Like, we want to make sure, though, that through it all, we can be fully present. Through it all, we can be in community with people who are going to support us. And that's been an important part of my leadership journey for sure the past several years.
1: I, I love and empathize with so much that you just said. And I feel that actually we, we've done it. Like, me and you have definitely sat and talked um, in, in depth about um, a lot of the things that you've mentioned. And one thing in particular that I'm really excited about with partnering with you and your school and uh, the, the scholars from Chicago is a sense of there's more than just the city of Chicago. There's more than just their local neighborhood to physically bring them from Chicago to Delaware, to just see a whole different side of the country and be surrounded by people that are totally different. And it's a is a break from their comfort zone, but is in a safe environment and an encouraging environment they could hopefully just unlock so much newness and potential. Um, So I'm really excited about getting my Delawarean scholars and getting the kids from Chicago and getting the kids from Charlotte and just bringing us all in the same place for that type of fellowship and social, emotional, and academic development to hopefully unlock um, their future potential. Um, So again, I have to say, none of this would have been possible um, in terms of us expanding to Chicago without you and your work. Um, and I, I know that we won't see the, the fruits of the labor until three, four, five years down the line, but we're, we're doing some amazing, amazing things. And also, I, I think that a key difference between me and you and, and our age, nearing 40, and with uh, younger students, is that I feel that there is more of an awareness of even the concept of social, emotional health and wellness than when we were in high school. So even the idea, somebody will come up to me and say social emotional wellness. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like it it wouldn't even trigger something for me back in the day. But I feel at least now it's okay to bring that up in discussion in an academic setting. Um, It's okay to or you find students that are aware about being anxious or being depressed and at least knowing that okay I can then broach this subject. Um, as opposed to when we were in high school, that was super taboo. No one was talking about it. Um, So I believe that we do need more leaders like yourself that put that at the forefront, because especially for underrepresented people, it's a conversation that needs to happen and it needs to be even more normalized.
0: Indeed, brother. Well, one, I'm humbled by the affirmation. You know, I, I, you know, you are one of the people that inspire me. So I'm humbled by the affirmation. I would be remiss if I just didn't say like, I've been the recipient of so much love and wisdom throughout my life. Like the, the amount of people that I've had the privilege of knowing, uh, working with, developing friendships with, um, brotherhoods and sisterhoods with, my family, just like so many people have poured into me. So, um, where like n- none of who I am would be possible to just without these people. So, I'll be remiss if I didn't say that. Um, but then, sort of, going to your point, um, around the school piece, you know, I am always, and we are always trying to learn and grow as people and learn and grow as school leaders, right? Like something you said at the outset, like we are not a finished product and we are always striving to sort of figure out how to be a little bit better. But the one thing that just like has to be true, like as you develop your skill set of being a teacher or a school leader, as you sort of figure out how to navigate change management as you are sort of figuring out um, like curriculum decisions, and you're trying to sort of figure out like how we're gonna do these things. The the one thing that must be true and it must be foundational to sort of everything that we do is we have to bring this radical humanity to our work. Like we have to love our young people and we have to love each other. In school, sometimes there is this dynamic to where there appears to be like this sort of teacher-leader divide, this teacher-leader schism. And in many cases, like, it's a real thing, and I definitely understand how something like that might develop. And I think it's the responsibilities of leaders to really examine, like, how am I showing up to these spaces? What am I doing to either, like, reinforce unhealthy and toxic power dynamics or what am I doing to empower and embolden and support my people? Right? Like what am I doing to like listen? Like to really listen to what it is my my staff is saying? Am I taking the opportunities to like really probe and to get at the root and at the heart? Because oftentimes like I can imagine as a teacher, there is a reluctance to sort of be open with your boss because you don't know what that's going to bring. And I think as leaders, we have to recognize that and we have to do a lot of work to like invite and open up those spaces for our staff to to do those. And that's something that I'm like, again, I'm still working on to this day. Um, But I feel like doing that also creates the conditions for our staff to be more of their full selves right because they're the ones like interacting with kids every single day they're the ones in the classroom spaces with kids every single day and we have to do our part as leaders to like check ourselves check our biases and also name where we are trying to grow right like You know, one of my leaders uh, sort of talks about making things visible. And I feel like that's something that we have to do all the time, like make visible, like be vulnerable, talk about your areas of growth, like own up to something you've done. Mm -hmm. Because if you're able to do that, it just creates a trust that allows those sort of open and vulnerable conversations to exist. And again, I think it empowers teachers to sort of be more full, be more of themselves. And I think it just sort of creates a sort of environment where everyone is striving for excellence but also recognizing that perfection is not necessarily a part of excellence right and we can sort of we can do these things and we can make mistakes and we can sort of give the grace of knowing that you know what i've been there also so how can we how can we learn from this so we don't repeat it because the other thing too is like we can't be making too many same mistakes because these are, these are young people's lives. You know what I mean? Like these are young people's lives. And when you think about certain neighborhoods, like a school is really a matter of life and death for some young people. You know what I mean? Like the opportunity that they get in a school, the opportunity they get to learn and grow and figure out who they are could be an opportunity, a, a life and death moment for them. And so like there is definitely a, an urgency to that work. Um, But we have to just sort of take these complexities and these nuances and just make sure that we're just like always cognizant and present and aware of just the many variables and factors that are just sort of always part of the work.
1: Brother, that naturally leads me to my last two questions. Um, And it's it's more so like a quick response what comes naturally. So my first question is, what is your why? (sighs) Man,
0: my Why? i think my why is is love and that sounds really generic it sounds really corny Um, but so many people have given me love right and i I am a a a very imperfect person um and without the love of my family without the love of you my brother my brothers from georgia uh, my sisters from hampton that i love um people that i've worked with mentors like that love supports me like even in my in my darkest moments like i know that like i'm not alone and there's there's still like hope right and and because of the love that i've received and sort of what that's done for me in terms of like saying like you know what tony like even though you feel you have these areas of growth and these sort of significant things you have to work on so many people have showed me so much love to where like that's that that's a part of me that just is never going to go anywhere and so like, i'm always inspired to try to figure something out and just sort of keep going and, and being able to be a part of a community of people to do that for young people uh is, is really really important to me man so like i would say my why is, is really suited it's rooted in love man and just really wanting to be in community um And just be a part of a young person's life, man. Because, you know, our kids are just so incredible, man. Like, kids are so incredible, man. Like, the number of stories to where, like, you're just awed by something a young person does or says. Or you're just awed by their how they see the world and how they make sense of the world and how they sort of interact in situations. If if I could tell a quick story, brother, um, you know, you mentioned SEL. Um, I'll never forget. I was on a playground one day and uh, this was uh, when I was at a middle school and we had a few kids that were playing basketball. We had some fifth graders. And these fifth graders were some of the students, uh, there's this phrase that we uh, that I heard before, the students you know and love the most, right? Like The <laughs> students you know and love the most. Uh, they were on the basketball court one day, and one of the kids fouled another kid, right? And so he was on the ground. He said, was like,
1: dang, bro. He was like, you fouled me.
0: And the kid was like, my bad. He was like, I mean, if you're going to play, you just got to make sure that you just can't be too aggressive. Because you can hurt somebody that way, man. He's like, I'm saying, like, I didn't mean to do it. I hear you. I'm not going to do it. To get, like, so they were animated. You know what I'm saying? Like, they were, they were screaming at each other. Like, what are you doing? Like you do, hooping. You know what I'm saying? That's a part of basketball. But they were exercising all the skills that were taught and reinforced about SEL, right? Like, how do you handle conflict? How do you talk about what it is you're feeling? How do you hear what it is that the other person is saying? Like, how do you make sense of those things? So, it was just like this beautiful moment, man. Of like watching these—again, these are the kids that we know and love the most. You know what I'm saying? Like in this moment, they're hooping. Somebody gets fouled hard. Their 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 voices are being elevated, but they're still exercising the skills. And I think the, a thing to think about also, just for us as adults and having children, I think sort of really uh, brought this home for me is that. You got to fall back sometimes. You know what I mean? Like the moment a voice was raised, I think it would have been very easy as an adult and as a teacher to say, hey, hey, what's going on? What's going on? Why are we yelling? What's going on? Sometimes you got to like just fall back and let them be, right? And I think like being able to sort of, I was sitting there watching the whole time and just being able to sit there and watch how they navigate, it was just like this incredibly proud moment to where it's like, man, like they're teachers because they were fifth graders, but like their fourth grade teachers had a role in that. Their third grade teachers had a role in that. Their second, first, and kindergarten teachers had a role in that. Because to your point, like you don't know when it's going to click, but you still you do the teaching, you do the reinforcement, you do the instruction, hoping because we believe in the best of what our kids can be. Of knowing, like it's it's going to click. I don't know when. I might not be around to see it, but I know it's going to click. So I'm going to do these things. And so, like that, that love, man, is really is really a part of my why.
1: I will say before I ask my last question to that specific story and point, I feel that that happens and is amplified when you as an educator, black male, can see yourself in your students. Because you in that moment, and I've had similar exchanges where I'm just watching, I'm seeing myself as that fifth grader. And I know that that raised voice and the quote unquote aggression of the tone is not aggressive. It's them communicating and not only communicating, but displaying the skills that we're trying to teach them to not only have them better their academic experience, but better their lives. And when we see ourselves in those students, we handle it differently. And that's the uh, uh, um, misfortune of what's happening in the culture is that times people in positions of power don't necessarily see themselves in the students. So that moment, is then interrupted by the teacher that's yep. jumping in to quote unquote diffuse the situation because they don't necessarily yep. understand that, nah, they're not yelling, they're communicating. And yep. I, we have to have more educators that look like us doing the work that we're doing to enable those type of learnings. Um, yep,
0: I, I would if I could add to that, yep. I think that is 100% accurate. And I would say like, because we know like we will always, just because of the, the makeup of our country, we will always have lines of difference in our schools. But I think that then also calls us to just like be in tune and honest with who we are as well. And like, I, I think that we have done a disservice to ourselves by trying to sort of create this line between like work self and personal self, right? And I think that if we just sort of recognize that like we are just one, like there is no such thing as a work self or a personal self. I think if we just sort of, if, if we are authentic as human beings, then I think we can still, because like I've been frustrated, whether you're white, black, woman, male, transgender, et cetera, like you've been frustrated. You know what I mean? Like whether you're white, black, male, uh, female, like you've been disappointed. You've been angry. You failed at something. You've been hurt, right? Like, and if we just sort of think about, okay, like at that core, I've experienced that emotion. And I know that this young person I'm working with also has X, Y, and Z. So, like, where is where is this sort of this empathy and this this uh, sort of idea of like seeking understanding? How can I like, constantly sort of apply that to what it is I'm doing? And so, like, I would also charge us to just bring our humanity, man, to our work every day. Like, there is no such thing as a work stuff. Like, you are who you are, and so we got to bring that empathy and bring that sort of understanding uh, to the work as well.
1: My brother, my last question. This is probably the toughest question, but there is clearly a right and a wrong answer. LeBron. The Knicks are still trash, yes. Oh, you got jokes. <laughs> you got jokes. I'm a Brooklyn Nets fan anyway. 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 LeBron James or Michael Jordan? Come on, man. Come
0: on, man. I, I know we, you're that's smart, not man. A, I know you're that's smart. A, know you're smart a real real you know the question. right answer. That's not a real question. You know man. the answer. You know the answer. Listen, you know listen, the answer. Here, here's... Here's
1: what I would say to that Don't question. Don't disappoint me. Here's what I would say to that question. No, this is not a dissertation. Right? This is not a dissertation. No, it's
0: not a dissertation. I hear you. I hear you.
1: Oh, you see, you're thinking about it. Clearly, you're going to give me the wrong not, answer. No,
0: I'm not. thinking about anything. I'm, I'm just trying to figure out like how to convey this in a way that everyone
1: will understand. So you're going to rationalize um, your incorrect answer. I already know what you're going to say because you're thinking about. It. Look at you. You're looking up into the sky. You're thinking about is, how I to am explain looking at the, the wrong sky I'm
0: thinking like you know what there is. Jesus is important.
1: Oh, there's going to
0: be so many people find hope and inspiration in Jesus. Oh man. But Jesus comes. <laughs> Jesus comes from the God, him or herself. You know what I'm saying? Like Here we Jesus go. comes Here we from go. God, him or herself. Here we go. And there is only one. You know what I'm saying? Like I said Michael Jeffrey you, Jordan. I love you. Like is it Michael Jeffrey Jordan? Like there's nothing else to say. You know what I'm saying? Like, I had hope that they, you would give me the correct
1: him. answer and clearly I was mistaken in my hope There's I saw only myself one. in you, but no, nah, man. Like you mean <laughs> to tell me regardless of time period MJ versus uh, LeBron, that MJ is going to get the better of LeBron? Bro, here's what I'm telling you.
0: LeBron, and let me also say this. I love LeBron James. I, like, I think LeBron James is absolutely amazing. Uh, He started a school in Akron. Like, I love LeBron James, so there is no hate in this. Um, But, bro, Michael Jordan, man, like, Michael Jordan broke men's will. You know what I'm saying? Like he broke people's will. Like they entered the basketball court, Michael Jordan feeling like, you know what? There's not really much I can do about this. They don't feel that way about LeBron, which is not a bad thing. And I, I think that's one of the things that's not a bad thing. Because I think that actual that challenge is what makes LeBron great, because he answers the bell every single time. You know what I'm saying? Like when people bring their their greatness, LeBron sort of steps up. Uh, but there is only one. You know what I'm saying? Like there's, there's so only one many John. ways I, mean. I
1: could kind of chop away at that logic. But I'm gonna say there's, there's it, no way. I'm gonna say there's it it no way athlete. you can. Because just that's that's more so a personality trait. Once you step on the court, so I could attribute something similar to Kobe. I could attribute oh, can, something we similar the to too. Russ. We can get us Russ into the analytics works. too. I could get into, I could get into those type of athletes, and on the LeBron end, I could get into the whole Magic effect. Magic wasn't "quote unquote" a killer on the court. People loved him, but at the same time, when Magic was playing, Magic was playing. So I understand the personality aspect, but ultimately, 6'9", 270, and the things that he's able to do versus what MJ was doing, regardless of era, regardless of how the refs were calling the game, you got to give it to LeBron. Bro, it's okay. I love you, and respect George. you. I love you, and respect you. We can have this discussion I over a happy hour, and you could. Here's what this really is.
0: Okay. This is your deep-rooted New York hate. That's all this is. You know right. what I'm saying? Let's get in the fancy exactly. right. couch and break that down.
1: <laughs> no, I, I love him because I hate him so much. And with that said, my brother, thank you, thank you, thank you, man.
0: My brother, of course, man. I love you, man. I am inspired by you, man. I am proud of you. Um and thank you, man, for your work. Thank you for your service. Again, thank you for inspiring me um to be the best version of myself, man. I look up to you. I love you, and thank you.
1: Luke.